A transparency organization recently settled a lawsuit against the San Diego District Attorney's Office. The First Amendment Coalition wanted to get records pertaining to sexual misconduct in the DA's office, but the office tried to offer summaries instead of producing the actual records. The case was settled after a judge's ruling in favor of the transparency organization. Also, changes in court fees may cause headaches for state and local budgets, but advocates say the change makes the legal system more fair. For the San Diego Union Tribune, I'm Daniel Wheaton, and this is your San Diego News Fix. Greg Moran, you cover legal affairs as part of the Cops and Courts team at the Union Tribune, and recently you had a pair of stories about ongoing legal issues. Let's start with the first one involving the district attorney and some records that recently got released. What was this controversy? Well, this had to do with uh, the settlement of a lawsuit that was filed by an organization called the First Amendment Coalition, which is a statewide uh, organization based up north that uh, is kind of an access advocacy group for journalists, for citizens, for uh, uh, nonprofit organizations to, mm-hmm. to kind of get government records and, and get into government proceedings. Uh, last year, in uh, July of last year, they had sued the district attorney's office because they had asked for records of uh, sexual misconduct among employees within the San Diego district attorney's office from 2013 through 2018. They wanted to see kind of a Me Too type of story. Mm-hmm. Um, the district attorney's office would not give them the records. They had asked for these under the Public Records Act uh, and had said instead, well, we can give you summaries of the incidents that mm-hmm. they have. So not the actual record, just kind of like an analysis of the record. Here is kind of what it says, you know, without names, dates, details, or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the First Amendment Coalition thought that to be uh, not uh, adequate and all, more importantly, not complying with the Public Records Act and filed a lawsuit for the full records. Uh, the, uh, earlier this year, in the summer of this year, a judge ruled in their favor, and then recently they uh, decided to settle the case. Uh, they got the records and also got the county to pay their legal fees. Yeah, so a big victory for this group that was seeking access. But we know that there are some limitations as to what can be released under the Public Records Act. What are the arguments that the district attorney's office tried to make in kind of saying, no, we won't get these over? Part of their argument was I think they, they tried to have it both ways, and, and I guess a charitable interpretation is they were trying to comply. They, they were saying, look, uh, these records in, uh, it will include uh, personnel information, private information of our employees that is exempt under the Public Records Act. Uh, also, some of it may, you know, uh, I think uh, intersect with uh, the Police Officers' Bill of Rights and things like this. So they were saying mm-hmm. there are some privacy considerations here. Uh, that, uh, you know, we're not sure if we can release them or not, or we don't want to release them. We think those those prevent us from releasing them. So instead, in order to kind of satisfy you, here is sort of the gist of the complaints without that private information. Mm-hmm. And the First Amendment Coalition kind of said, I think, a couple things. One, uh, you know, there is such a thing as a black pen. Uh, you can redact the personal information from these records. Uh, and number two, uh, if you're claiming an exemption, claim the exemption. You know, we'll, we'll fight that out. But this sort of half measure, they thought they were trying to skirt the Public Records Act law by releasing something that appeared to comply with it, but that in reality, frankly, did not. Yeah, and in journalism, the 
public records access as something of a North Star. But to people who aren't familiar, what's the importance of this law? Well, the Public Record uh, Act uh, is uh, uh, enshrined in California law. It allows the public to view records of government proceedings, uh, basically. Mm-hmm. That's it. It allows the public uh, the, the right, the legal right, to uh, not to be told what happened, but to document, to see, to observe, to, to get copies of actually what happened. Uh, allows the public to, to to watch government or to monitor how government business is being conducted. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a ton of exemptions to it. I tend to think it, it at this point kind of needs a rewrite or a new draft. I think there are too many outs for governments in it. But there are these you know broad principles about this is way you know basically any government record that's produced it is assumed that it is a public record mm-hmm. unless and until uh, some of these numerous exemptions can be cited so it's a very important record for uh, the functioning of uh, democracy open societies and things like that mm-hmm. so does this set any kind of precedent or is this just kind of an isolated loss I suppose for the DA's office yeah I, I'm not sure if it sets a precedent other than a kind of a precedent by sort of Defaulters, in the sense that, if if they had been allowed, the First Amendment coalition says that if they had been allowed to uh, release records in this kind of sanitized and summarized way, this incomplete way, that would set a bad precedent. That mm-hmm. would essentially, you know, really gut the one of the fundamental concepts of the Public Records Act is the public gets the record. You know, you can you can withhold parts of it, you can redact parts of it, you can argue about other parts of it, but the record has to be produced, not some simulacrum of the, of the record or some version of the record. So, I suppose by winning this lawsuit uh, and you know and getting them to pay their legal fees, but simply by winning the lawsuit, it vindicates the public's right to get uh, these records and and defeats an idea that somehow we can uh, kind of get this half measure and sort of release part of it and not all of it. Yeah, that kind of reminds me of perhaps the best national example is the summary of the Mueller report from William Barr versus the actual report itself. It seems like that could have, that's kind of a metaphor of what happened here in a sense. Yeah, I mean, a different scale, but I think the same principle, which is it's not someone's version of what happened, which, you know, may be done in good faith or maybe not have been done in good faith, but mm-hmm. it, it it allows people to make their own decisions to determine what the record says or what it doesn't say. It's not someone's interpretation of what that record says. And so you're right. It is analogous to that. Yeah. You know, it, it's a hard lesson for the for the county to, to learn here because they do have to pay the legal fees, which are about $97,500. That's a lot of money. Uh, to most people, uh, but uh, that's important too because that kind of acts as a deterrent, maybe for other government agencies to try the same sort of tactics. So I think uh, this was a strong uh, public access win by the First Amendment Coalition, and, and they should really be acknowledged for for going to the mat on this. Mm-hmm. And the other story you recently wrote is about a change in how fees are going to be levied when it comes to people that are in the court system. What were the forces that caused this change to occur? You know, it's really interesting. I've covered courts for many years, and of course, every time you go to somebody sentencing, they get what we write about is the the amount of time that they get or, or what the actual punishment is. But there's a whole portion of the sentencing which is just as litany of you pay this, you pay that, this fee, this fine, this assessment. Um, the the issue here is people who have been uh, involved in criminal justice reform for many years have been trying to 
um, eliminate or, or or lessen these fees mm-hmm. because they uh, are can be excessive. Uh, they can also uh, kind of really retard people's ability after they've served their sentence to integrate back into society because the, the fees can be substantial. And mm-hmm. frankly, in the last number of years, probably over the last decade or so, there has been an enormous increase in these fees, both the number and the amount of fees uh, that courts charge that are levied by county governments. They can levy the fees, state governments and things like that. It's become kind of a de facto funding mechanism for not just the court system, but for all kinds of state and local programs. And do you have a sense of how much money would technically be lost if this just completely changes? Uh, not an exact figure, no. So what, what happened this year was uh, several things that I won't get too far into the weeds, but there was a court decision earlier this year that said, look, uh, if you assessing fees to people who are indigent, the poor people, without determining whether or not they can pay is unconstitutional. You can't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, that then led to a movement in the legislature to for a bill that passed both the Assembly and the Senate that would have required judges to hold a hearing before assessing these fees to determine whether or not somebody could pay. Mm -hmm. In the analysis of that bill, the court said, uh, look, just having us do that, the court time taking to to do one of these four or five minute hearings uh, amounts to about between $25 million and $45 million a year in costs. Wow. Um, No one really knows or did have a good figure about how much less revenue that would lead to because some people could pay, some people could not, some people would be in the middle, pay a little, pay something like that. So it's hard to determine what the revenue loss was. Mm-hmm. That bill, although it passed, Governor Newsom vetoed it earlier this month. Uh, there is another bill pending in in the Senate that is much broader that would eliminate all fees. And the closest anyone's been able to say so far on that is that it would result in hundreds of millions of dollars of lost revenue to state and local governments over a period of time because there are approximately half a million felony and misdemeanor cases across the state of California every year. Almost all of those contain some kind of fine, forfeiture, assessment, penalty. There's a whole bunch of traffic tickets, you know, things like that. So you're really talking about a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So for people who are opposed to this kind of change, I imagine they would say that this takes away some of the kind of punitive teeth of, you know, committing and being found guilty of a misdemeanor and a felony. What's that kind of discussion? You know, the concern has been uh, that uh, some of these fees go to sort of victim restitution and paying people victims who uh, people who are the victims of, of crimes, uh, violent crimes, uh, physical crimes, property crimes. Those, as far as I can tell, those aren't going to be touched. You would mm-hmm. still have to pay those. And you would still have to pay what's this called the statutory fine, which is if you yeah, uh, shoplift or something, it's a misdemeanor, it, it's a fine of up to $1,000. So those would remain. Mm-hmm. What this legislation, what the reformers really get at is the entire uh, laundry list of add-ons after that. Mm-hmm. The court assessment fee, the court security fee, the criminal justice fee, the probation monitoring fee. Uh, oftentimes people can't make these payments, so they go to a collections agency. If the collections agency has to go and collect money from you, there is a fee for the collections agency to collect the money. You know, it's a, it's that layers kind of and thing. Layers. It's layers and layers. So, uh, I, I think at, at least at this point, there's no overt opposition to a fine is a, is a, a deterrent uh, mm-hmm. or part of punishment like a sentence is. Uh, there is more a concern about okay, look, if you don't want to find people and you want to take away that revenue, you got to backfill that revenue at some point. Mm-hmm. 
So at this point, are there any proposed solutions for making sure that the courts can still operate as and local government can still operate based on the money they used to receive? Yeah, right now it's because Newsom, um, Governor Newsom had uh, vetoed that bill, it's kind of the status quo, except uh, there is this court decision out there which said you can't you know, assess these fees unless you uh, conduct a hearing. There have since been court decisions from other appeals court which says, no, you can't. So you have this. So it, mm-hmm. it's really hit or miss, almost courtroom to courtroom, county to county, things like that. Eventually, that'll have to be resolved by the state Supreme Court, um, which will probably happen in the next year or so. Uh, now, I think the discussion is going to be and is focusing on this other bill that's pending up there, SB 144, which would eliminate all the fees. Newsom, in his veto message, seemed to kind of, if you want to read the tea leaves, favor that as long as there was what he called a comprehensive solution through the budget process Mm -hmm. for funding courts and victims. So to me, that indicates next year there's going to be some head knocking in the legislature that says, okay, we're going to eliminate these fees. It's going to be millions and millions of lost money, but here's how we're going to fill that back in. Mm -hmm. If that happens then that'll be a real significant change to criminal justice in California. I mm-hmm. mean, it's very, very, it'll be, you know, as we are oftentimes, pretty much on the leading edge of that kind of thing nationally. So I think mm-hmm. people are going to be watching that. Yeah, and for the people who have been pushing this kind of reform, do they see this as a big victory or do they do they say this doesn't go far enough? I think I really disappointed uh, many of them in the veto. Mm-hmm. Uh, it passed with very little opposition in either chamber. I think people are surprised. Um, they, they think that the uh, the cost of the court for holding the hearing was a bit of a canard. But I think there is a sense that uh, that the the second bill is a real um, you know groundbreaking way to to move forward to to uh, to, to further reform the system uh, to make sure that people particularly, I mean, these fines generally fall on it and really affect lower income people and communities of color. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they have these knock on effects where if you can't pay it and it goes to collections, then you're, you know, it's a debt that can't be discharged in, in a bankruptcy court or anything. It goes with you forever. They can garnish your wages, do all kinds of things. So I think people are, are, are now turning towards this other bill, hoping to get kind of a wider, reform going. Uh, and and at the same time, I think getting some support from court people who frankly don't want to run the system mm-hmm. on fines and fees and on the backs of people who use it, who want a more robust, you know, support of the system from the general fund, from the legislature, and they might be able to get that. Yeah, I imagine even within the court, there was a sense that maybe these fines were unfair. I, I got that very strongly, that they don't like doing it. Because really, they you know the money does not go to the court. Mm. Almost all the money goes to the state. And then uh, 40% goes to local governments, 60% goes to the state. And of that 60%, only a third goes to the court. The rest goes is sprinkled all over the state government mm-hmm. in these funds and projects that really have nothing to do with courts. And really makes you think, well, why is somebody who, who picks up a DUI funding, you know, the state veterinary board. I mean, yeah. What is the connection there? And I think people want to you know, really clear that out. And uh, I think there is support in the court system for revamping the system as long as they remain whole financially. Mm-hmm. All right. Greg Moran, thank you so much. You're welcome. In other legal news, Margaret Hunter's sentencing may be rescheduled. Margaret is the wife and former campaign manager of Alpine Congressman Duncan Hunter. 
The couple were both indicted last August for allegedly misspending a quarter million dollars in campaign funds. Unlike her husband, Margaret has changed her plea to guilty on one count of conspiracy. Prosecutors and attorneys for Margaret Hunter have asked to delay her sentencing to April 6, 2020, while she continues to cooperate with the government. Congressman Hunter's trial is set for January 22nd. Thanks for listening to the San Diego News Fix, which goes live weekdays at 5 p.m. On weekday mornings, you can also hear a quick rundown of local weather and headlines. Just tell your smart speaker to launch the San Diego Union Tribune. You can also get the Flash Briefing as a podcast. For a full listing of our audio offerings, go to uniontrib.com slash podcasts. Until next time.